My song might haunt your dreams Tonight I'm the man From God knows where Singer, songwriter, painter, essayist, collaborator, criminologist, folk, country, Americana, beat, all of the above, none of the above. This is Tom Russell's podcast from God Knows Where. John Yolkenbeck from Frontera Records here again. With all the attention the Ken Burns documentary on country music has been receiving, it seems like the perfect opportunity to wind the clock back 25 years to 1994 and the release of Tulare Dust, the Merle Haggard tribute album that was produced by none other than Tom Russell, along with his frequent collaborator Dave Alvin. Tom joins me over the phone, and can you believe it's been 25 years, Tom? My God, time flies when you're having fun and making music, John, but it's good to hear your voice. Yeah, it, it seems in a lot of ways like yesterday, and the whole experience was so magical to me and Dave, of course. Uh, it's, it's good to revisit it, and it's glad Ken, Ken Burns kind of gave it a nod in his uh, country music documentary. What was the nod? Somebody sent me some screenshots of uh, when he mentioned the Americana chart starting, which started with Tulare Dust, the guy, I forget his name, who started the Americana radio chart, said it was all because of Tulare Dust that started a new genre. I think that's a pretty radical statement because there were other genres before that, like progressive country, country rock, etc. But it was nice. So people always give Dave and I that nod. And it was on the screen in Ken Burns' documentary. And there's also the Nashville crowd who did a tribute, right? Exactly. It was like a month apart from yours. It was called Mama's Hungry Eyes. And the only song in common I was looking over the list of, of tracks, Silver Wings was the only one that was duplicated. Yeah, I got to be honest with you because I know the inside. A lot of people said the only good thing on there was Emmy Lou or doing uh, whatever she did, Mama's Hungry Eyes or something. But uh, Merle himself told me face to face. He liked our tribute. He thought it was a lot more honest. And Merle wasn't a huge fan of Nashville by that point. Same as Johnny Cash. Now, there's an anecdote I've heard, and if you've heard it and you want to tell it, you can tell it, but it goes back to a press conference that was held for Mama's Hungry Eyes, and Merle was in attendance at the press conference. Do you know the story I'm referring to, or do you want me to tell it? Uh, you can tell it. So the story goes that they were talking up this new Nashville tribute and they asked Merle which his favorite track was. And he said, Iris DeMint doing Big City. <laughs> which was on our tribute. Which was on the <laughs> to Larry Dust tribute. So I've, I don't know if that's, a, if that's true or not, but I've heard that story before. I think it is because Merle just did not like that Nashville tribute. He was willing to take the royalties, but uh, I talked to Merle several times and he kind of had my gut level feeling about Nashville being a backslapper's paradise that got rid of him and Johnny Cash. It's the same today. It would make sense because he was a fan of Iris. He flipped over Iris's big city, and Iris, thanks to you, John, became a friend of mine. She came out of Kansas City. We can talk about that in a minute, but Iris was on my um, Man From God record. But uh, Merle flipped over her voice because uh, it sounds pretty authentically country, old-time country, and uh, she ended up 
in Merle's band for a while. And yeah, didn't he title one of his um, albums after one of her songs? Probably. I don't have everything he did, but she ended up in his band. And, and when we did, uh, we, we can jump back and forth here, but when we did the tribute concert with Merle at the Fillmore West, after the record came out, there was about seven or eight of us on the show with Merle. I just got this thing right next to him. I think we have a picture of that, but me and Rosie Flores, but Iris was already in the band doing business with Merle. She, she took me on the bus to meet Merle after the show. And I was the only artist that got to do that. And through a cloud of smoke, I was a little bit nervous because Merle can go either way. You know, as an ex con, if he's not into something, he'll go, <laughs> let you know. But the boys right. were smoking on the bus after the show. And, uh, Merle said to me, uh, Iris, bring that guy here. And I thought, uh-oh. And he looked at me and pointed at me. He said, son, I want to tell you something. I go, I go, yes, sir, Merle. And he goes, before you recorded Tearing the Labor Camps Down, I'd forgotten I'd written it. Thank you. <laughs> and I said, thank you, Merle. I'll see you later. And I got off before anything happened. It was great for a while. And then I think they had a falling out over a publishing issue with one of her songs or something. Well, I should mention, since you brought up the concert in 2014 it was reissued by Rockbeat, and it had a bonus second disc that included i guess highlights from the concert i know it, it didn't have merle's uh performance because of licensing issues but merle was actually there and came on stage yeah yeah merle uh we all did our songs billy joe was there and uh marshall crenshaw and we can go through the list in a second and but a uh, peter case i guess and rosie but we all did our song I think we did one extra piece of our own and then at the end there was a big rave up but Merle came out and did four or five by himself and then he got us up everybody up to sing with him and he motioned me towards the mic with Rosie and I got to sing right next to Merle Haggard and I have a photo of that somewhere but quite I, I mean this day I can listen nobody can sing like that such a sincere vocal country vocal and of course I refer to Merle and our song on the new record, Highway 46, all the Bakersfield people I grew up on. Well, I just wanted to make sure that people knew that there are two different versions of it out there. And um, the one that we have through Frontera, I think I have a few copies left, is the deluxe edition that does include the concert with it. Yeah, and in the same way, Rockbeat, I don't know what happened to that label, but once things changed in the last five or six, seven years, who knows what label I'm on? So thank God for FrontierRecords.com. Yeah, thanks for the plug, Tom. And I know there's people working even on Sunday out in the uh, out in the factory and uh, putting these compilations together and uh, stacking the LPs under the pool table. And they're fulfilling the orders down in the warehouse as we speak. Yeah, and feeding the cats, etc. So good. Um, you mentioned Mar Marshall Crenshaw, and so we're totally jumping around from my. Uh, list of questions here, but I'm going to move on to one I had since you mentioned him. He seems to me to be the odd man out as far as the typical kind of Americana artists that were on this tribute. Where did he come from? That's a good question. Of, of all the people on here, and I think they should be mentioned real quick, let's mention Iris, Peter Case, Dwight Yoakam, Joe Ely, Robert Earl King, Rosie Flores, Steve Young, Marshall Crenshaw, Baron Whitfield. Lucinda Williams, Billy Joe Shaver, Katie Moffat, John Doe, Dave Allen. That's the list. Wow. What an incredible array of, of artists. Yeah, very edgy. Edgy. That's what I like. All kind of outsiders in a way. 
I think Marshall Crenshaw, because he's more of a rock pop guy, must be a friend of Dave Alvin's. I, I didn't hang out with him much. He was a nice guy. He'd had a few semi-hits, and Dave knew him. That's what I'm thinking. In the same way with John Doe, who was in the Blasters with Dave. He was in X with Dave. Yes. And they, they've done some shows together recently. I think he was on Dave's train. Dave, Dave took over on the train trips for me a while back, and now I'm getting back into it. We might have a train next October, a cowboy train. That's going to come up in a minute. But Dave, John Doe worked together, and uh, Dwight Yoakam, who I got to know a little bit later. I worked with him a couple times. Dave knew Dwight better than I did because they're both real California. I would say at the time it was released, Dwight Yoakam was probably about the biggest name. Yeah, definitely. He had some hits. He kind of resuscitated Bakersfield music in, in a very good way, as well as, you know, he did some records with Buck. He respected Buck a lot before Buck passed away, Buck Owens. He used Flaco Jimenez on quite a few cuts, and so he... Used a little Tex-Mex in there. Yeah, he was on the Flacco album where he did Carmelita. Yeah, he did that pretty cool version of Carmelita with Flacco. We were listening to that the other day. Yeah, we love Flacco. He's still out there playing. Of course, we were very close to Doug Somm. And Augie Myers is actually my wife Nadine's honorary godfather. And uh, I was going to say about Dwight, when I was opening a West Coast tour for John Prime years ago, Dwight showed up and he was very nice about my songs and Bonnie Raitt showed up too and loved Gallo del Cielo. So I bump into almost everybody eventually, you know. He really does the country twang on holding things together too. Holding things together. Dwight, yeah, he, he has the twang. He gets it. I think he'll be like my new record because Kirchin and the steel guitar really harken back to that Bakersfield sound. Well, I think we should mention while we're name dropping all the people before we move on. Oh, I'd like to say how we came up with the concept, but a few other people that are important are Baron Swiftfield, the African American singer and great friend who does Irma Jackson. Who you did two duet albums with? Yes, I did two duet albums with Parents, Hillbilly Voodoo and Cowboy Mambo, which you have on Frontera now available. Well, they're not on the Frontera label, but we do have them. For order. Okay. I, I'm so lost about labels these days. <laughs> Peter, Peter Cates, of course, I, wrote, I wrote several songs with me and Bobby Newark. We wrote Beyond the Blues and somebody called me up from New York's bottom line once and said Springsteen's been doing the song at a sound check, but he never recorded it. So Bruce loved Gallo Del Cielo, as does Dylan, but Joe Ely, who, who does, I think, the definitive version of Gallo, is on this Merle record doing White Line Fever. But we could talk about all these people indefinitely. I'd just like to say that the idea for the record came on one of the first days I met Dave Alvin. He was in the studio with Greg Lease in L.A. recording King of California, great record, which has just been reissued. And uh, Dave just sang with me in Chicago with Jimmy Dale Gilmore and told me this. He recorded my song Blue Wing on there which a lot of people like. You changed your way of performing it to kind of match Dave's there for a while. It was sort of like Dylan doing uh, Hendrix's version of Watchtower. <laughs> exactly. And I've been uh, watching that. Your uh, suggestion, I've been watching the um, the Rolling Thunder movie by Scorsese, which is great. 
the one moving thing there was seeing Dylan sing the Ballad of Ira Hayes at an Indian reservation. It was quite moving, I thought, the way he did it. And I talk about the song and Peter Lafarge yesterday in a uh, in a post. But yeah, when Dave did Blue Wing, he did it kind of acoustically, and the Tom Russell band did it as a country song. And uh, I've been doing it more like Dave. Anyway, I was in the studio, Dave's doing Blue Wing, and I go, man, what a great record. You know, Merle would love this record. Or he or I said, we, well, we should do a tribute to Merle. This was after Dave told me, and this is very important to me, not to brag. Dave told me that Blue Wing saved his life. He, and he says this to this day. Dave was in Nashville after Blasters or X or somebody broke up, trying just to be a solo singer-songwriter and co-write songs. Getting sick to his stomach at, at the <laughs> scene, you know, kind of, but... But he was trying, and Dave's like me, and in a way, like Guy Clark could kind of do it, John Prine not really, but they try to co-write down there, and there's all these systems and stuff, but uh, Dave was getting homesick to go back to California when the guy from Bug Music, who co-publishes our stuff, said, you should hear this song of Tom Russell, just because I think he'd like it. Dave said, I played that song over and over and over and thought to myself, Dave, you should be writing stuff like this. I am out of here. I'm out of Nashville. I'm going to record this song and start writing stuff in the same vein as Tom. And that's how we got together. And uh, I like telling the story because if a song can do that, I don't care who wrote it. It's like me hearing Dylan thinking, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. Although I'm not putting myself on Bob's level. Now, in all these years, I don't think I've ever heard that story. Yeah, it, I don't tell it because it's a private thing between Dave and I. But now the world is going to know because it's going to be on the podcast yeah. from God knows where. Speaking of Bob Dylan, you guys are going to like this and get jealous. I just got a another uh, a bottle of Bob Dylan's Heaven's Door bourbon uh, that came in the mail for some favors I did. And I'm just putting a little plug in for Bob's bourbon and whiskey. It's pretty damn good. We are seeing Bob Dylan tonight here in Kansas City. Well, please say hello. Extend my regards. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure when they hand me the backstage pass and say Bob wants to talk to you, I, <laughs> I will say. And you'll probably, re you'll probably request 90 miles an hour down a dead-end street. <laughs> Which is what I requested the time I did actually get to meet Bob Dylan in an elevator, but that's for a whole nother podcast. We'll do a Bob Dylan podcast yeah. one of these days. Which is, do me a favor, John, yell out for Gallo del Cielo, see if he shows any recognition. I might yell out for Freebird. Okay, let's continue on. <laughs> Moving on. Do you want to talk about tribute albums in general? You have one for your songs, Wounded Heart of America. And I, I kind of wanted to ask you about the whole process of doing tributes. I know you were on one for Rosalie Sorrell's and uh, a Peter Case one. There's the Miner's Angel one that I put together. But how do you yeah. how do you work those things? How do they get uh, how do you get approached by people for them? There's a new one for Ray Wiley Hubbard, the great Texas writer. Somebody approached me, Brian Atkinson, who writes a lot of books about Texas songwriters. He's finishing a book on Mickey Newberry, who I knew too. But you get approached, or uh, Dave and I dreamt up the Merle thing. Peter Case thing was done by a, a record label. You know, it, it can come from a lot of things, or from your own gut level. Somebody, obviously somebody should do it. 
Steve Young tribute, which his son is trying to get going, and I would love to be on. Let's talk about Steve Young. I, I think that his take on shopping for dresses is one of two favorites of mine on the on the Tulare desk. The other one is Katie Moffat doing I Can't Be Myself. You want to you wanna get into Steve for a minute here? Yeah, you've um, referred to both Katie and Steve before as two of let's, the... Let's, let's concentrate on the rest of the time here on us. Uh, because this was my gut level view of, of these of these two extremely important pioneer people. Steve has passed a few years ago. Uh, God bless him. Katie's still with us. Both these people deserve a lot more recognition than they've been given as far as pioneers of progressive country, country rock, modern songwriting. You're talking about Steve doing shopping for dresses in such a soulful way. One of the first times I met Steve, I met him in the village back in the 80s. He had sobered up, I guess, and a very quiet man. He he didn't make his dent in the music business because he wasn't pushy. He wasn't Mr. Showbiz. He sang and he played guitar, very much like Jesse Winchester. You either got it or you didn't. And Steve had a house in Nashville because of his biggest hit or cover by other people, of course, was Seven Bridges Road, which was a huge hit for the Eagles. It's on the Eagles' greatest hits. And Joan Baez recorded it a lot of people. But Steve had an apartment in L.A. that he liked to live in part-time in a Mexican neighborhood over a Chinese grocery store. He lived near Van Dyke Parks, the great Van Dyke Parks, who was a whole other conceptual artist up there. And Steve would stay up all night as a recluse with the windows uh, covered over with blankets and a lot of recording equipment and either write songs or record songs. So he invited me up there one time. I thought, wow, this is some kind of monster Stravinsky. You know, it was so, what he was doing was so far out for a country singer song. So he played me a version, and people should check this out, of his doing Merle Haggard's uh, Sometimes I Dream which is completely different from Merle's version. Merle's version was not produced very well. It was produced like a two-step, and Steve did it as a ballad, and he rips it up. Sometimes I dream, sometimes I drink too much, sometimes I lie. It's, it's like hearing a, somebody in a confessional, you know, and it's just very moving. And it was just Steve and a solo guitar. And I thought, man, this guy is really breaking ground. A few years later, I'm working in Norway. I'm, I'm walking down the street. Andrew Harden and I and the band worked in Norway quite a bit. All of a sudden, I turn a corner and bump into Steve Young. And, you know, that's the way Steve was. Like, hey, how's it going, man? I go, what are you doing? He's going, I'm over here recording a record with a rock band. And the record was called Look Homeward Angel. And it, again, it was Steve on that course of really intimate country songs that if he wanted to use a synthesizer or an organ or a piano, he would. And he was talking about his drinking issues after he'd conquered them, his divorce, which he never quite got over. They had a son, Jubilee, uh, who's a songwriter. All these very intimate things that only people like Merle Haggard or Johnny Cash or Jesse Winchester or Steve could pull off artistically. He goes, go listen to it. Tell me what you think. I said, after a few days later, I met him. I said, man, this is revolutionary. He said, well, it's not going over very big when I show up at McCabe's or these folky joints and I want to play synthesizer and this and that. And they wouldn't let him. They wanted to hear a guy with the guitar. So he backed kind of away from it. And I, I think that kind of discouraged him a lot. He was a real groundbreaker. When Graham Parsons, who has gotten and well-deserved tons of attention because he was a 
he was a groundbreaker, but also he worked with the Rolling Stones. And Emmy Lou Harris. Yeah, Emmy Lou virtually created Emmy Lou, God bless her, and I love Emmy. Got to sing with her several times, but... Uh, you know, a real groundbreaker and a real guy that wanted to bring country and rock together. He'd show up at bad bars in Pacoima or out in L.A. and sing country songs, but wear a cape for the rednecks and almost get in a fight. Then he'd sing country songs for rock and roll people. You know, he, he really did cross the music over very well and had a very short life. I was lucky enough to see him two times. Uh, one solo, just him and his guitar, and he didn't need much more. His voice was so incredible. But then the other time I saw him, he was touring with Butch Hancock and they were duetting with each other. They weren't just opening for each other. I never heard that. Yeah. And speaking of uh, Carmelita, they they were they launched into Carmelita and it took me a while before I was like, wait a minute, I know this song. They had made it their own. They had done their voices blended you're so well together. No, no, no. I'm talking about Steve Young and, and Butch Hancock. Oh, because I was I was thought we were still talking about Graham. Okay, yeah, because I knew Graham had a bit long gone by that time. Right. And so, yeah, so Steve, my only point with Graham was when Graham was recording his Burrito Brothers record, Steve was right down the hall recording Seven Bridges Road or uh, Rock Salt and Nails, a, another great record that didn't go anywhere. Then, he, then country rock happens, the Eagles, blah, blah, blah. But Steve's already now in Nashville recording two records for RCA. Lonesome Olery and Mean was one of them, which again, blew people like Waylon Jennings away. And then the, uh, the so-called outlaw scene happened and Willie and everybody except for Waylon moved to Austin. And that's where I moved in the mid seventies. And Guy Clark, Towns Van Zandt. So this outlaw singer songwriter scene, which Hancock, the Flatliners was happening. But Steve Young really had a lot of impact on the sound of that the same way Billy Joe Shaver did with Waylon. So once again, he, you know, and I read good music magazines like Mojo and Uncut from the UK, and I always tell these guys, you're missing out if you don't and, and cover Steve's impact. A book on Freddie Neal just came out that they're covering, which is good because uh, he impacted Dylan. But I think that probably leads us also up to Katie Moffat and her, her pioneering stage, you know, and she's still going strong about how important she is too. And she needs recognition because she was recording great records in the seventies on major labels. If you want to segue to Kate. Well, you've mentioned several times that we will have some special guests on our podcast. So I wanted to surprise you. Are you ready for a surprise? Yeah. I've got, I hope it's, it's a good surprise. I've got somebody on the line who wants to say hello. Hey, Tom. It's Katie. Hey, Katie. <laughs> is that you, really? It really is. It's what's left of Katie Moffat. <laughs> it's great to hear your voice. I'm ready to talk about Katie Moffat and her continuing contribution to modern music. Okay. Let's talk about that. How did the two of you meet? I don't know, Katie. How did we meet? We met at the, at the Kerrville Folk Festival. Katie comes from Fort Worth originally, and uh, to me... She deserves to be part of this bludgeoning Texas music recognition scene. But I was in a group, Harden and Russell, with my first two records, Patricia Harden from Waco. We won the Turville New Writers Awards back in the mid-70s. And I'm sure we must have run into Katie there. It's still a big festival. I think Richard Thompson played it this year. 
And uh, Katie and I hit it off. I thought she was a great singer-songwriter. I knew her brother Hugh was also a really good, had written a couple of hits and a great singer-songwriter. Eventually, since the 80s, I think, when I moved to New York, Katie and I eventually co-wrote 30 songs. (laughs) Some really great songs. We approached a lot more than that, but but there are at least thirty, maybe maybe more, maybe closer to forty that actually got either recorded or performed or actually lived. Yeah, well, the big one really that I still do, and I'm sure she does, is "Walking on the Moon," which has been covered by a lot of people. Janie Fricky cut it, and it got quite a bit of airplay, and. Uh, and then there was one on Katie's most recent record that people should check out about Lee Harvey Oswald's wife, Marina, just looking at the world through her eyes. I was in Dallas not too long ago, and my my Uber driver told me that he knew Marina. He dri- had driven her around, and he was, wow. tell- he was telling me that she just lives an ordinary life there in Dallas. I was surprised that she would have stayed there. I would have thought it would have been difficult I, for her. I thought she went to Yikes. Ohio. She remarried and went to Ohio. Katie, you know that Uber drivers know the story. <laughs> <laughs> I should know this, huh? Yeah. That's true. So if, if, you, if true. Katie Moffat tells me that Marina moved to Ohio, I would probably go with her on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say so too. If I were Marina, I'd move to uh, Central America or something. I don't know, but... Well, Katie, Katie you, you started out on Columbia, and that was kind of one of the first big pushes for country music was with your albums, wasn't it? Yeah, my my first album was a, was with Billy Sherrill producing, and I think and he's, uh, no, he's no slouch, right? And, and he was he, he always was a a real uh, forward looking guy, and Amy Lou Harris had just begun charting and knocking some of Cheryl's records off the number one slot and Willie Nelson also. So, so he kind of told everybody, all the A&R people in Columbia, if there was anyone who was remotely progressive country, he wanted to see them first before they gave them to any other producer. So that's why I, I was actually signed by a guy on the West coast in LA, but I had to play, I had to go to the convention, the CBS convention, and play for Billy Sherrill in his hotel room and in order to, they told me to um, to get signed faster. They said, he won't like you. He won't want to produce you, but we have to do this. Wow. And sure enough, he wanted to produce me. So that's why my first record was made in Nashville. And John, I, we recorded 90 Miles an Hour Down a Dead End Street. On that record. You did. That's true. I, I, I've heard that. <laughs> Wanted to point that out. But working I'll, with I'll Billy invite was you, I'll invite you back when we do our, our Dylan show. <laughs> right on. I, I think there's so much about Katie. And some of it, I mean, I, I saw her profile today on Wiki. Somebody should update that with about 100 pages. But uh, same way with Steve. But and I know there's things Katie doesn't really mention, like that she was a movie star in several movies. She was in Billy Jack. I tell tell people all the time, I know a movie star. I think she was in Hard Country, or she sang it with Michael Martin Murphy. Yeah, I was in Hard Country. The other thing about Katie, again, that she doesn't mention is that she toured, and I think as an honor to her incredible ability, 
She toured with people like, wow, Warren Zevon, Charlie Daniels, Muddy Waters, Steve Martin. I saw her open for the Everly Brothers and Leo Kotke. Man, J.D. Souther, the Allman Brothers. I don't know. It goes on and on. And I know she doesn't like me to say this, but she sang backup with Jimmy Buffett and Hoyt Axton, who I love. I mean, she has seen all different sides of this music. I am waiting for the book, Katie. <laughs> Tom, I'm, a, I'm afraid a lot more people have to die before I can write this book. Oh. <laughs> Katie, did you know Steve Young? Oh, God, yes, yes. Well, Tom and, Tom and Steve and I... Um, toured together quite a bit overseas like uh, I remember I don't know really why but Tom you and and Steve and I were in Switzerland in a in books way up above on the mountain uh, the top of that mountain and I don't remember if we were just if it was a coincidence or if I think we we must have done festivals together the three of us and, of course, I began doing a, um, a few shows with Steve, and we would always do three songs together at the end. And, man, that was one of the greatest pleasures I've ever had as a singer. How did you choose the song on Tulare Dust that you chose to do? How did that come about so that people didn't duplicate songs, that sort of thing? Well, actually, Tom, I think you you were the one who urged me to take a look at at. I can't be myself because Steve had done an incredible version of that, and Steve wanted to do shopping with dresses. So it was it was really Tom. It was your idea, and and I took a look at it, and Dave Alvin and I uh, just sat down with two guitars, and and we did it. Your soaring vocals got mentioned in um, I, it's on Wikipedia. I, I can't remember if it was the Entertainment Weekly review or all music review, but you were listed as a standout. And to me, you and, and like I said earlier, you and Steve Young's songs are probably my two favorites uh, with Dwight coming in right behind it. Not, not to say Tom doesn't do a good job, but you know what I'm no, saying? No, no, no. I, I picked, I picked something more, not for my ability to sing. I'm a good, and I hope I've become a better singer in the last few years, but just cause I thought the songs uh, were forgotten and they were interesting Bakersfield songs, Katie and Steve being masterful vocalists. There's something about a Haggard song that you shouldn't, I mean, you shouldn't approach it unless same way as an Ian Tyson song, you have the ability to grasp how great the melodies are, not only the lyrics, the melodies. And I think Katie and Steve really did that. And Steve, of course, as she probably said, did a great version of I can't be myself. I have one other anecdote about Katie and Steve and us all touring together across Switzerland and France. One day, and I'll make it quick. One day I told Katie, I've I've written a song called The Angel of Leon. (laughs) And, And Katie said, you did? That was a title Steve was working on. I said, you're kidding me. You're kidding me. I finished the song. I think it's good. She goes, no, Steve mentioned that to us a few weeks ago. I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I, I ripped the guy off, it sounded like, but I had forgotten. He said, I've seen the Angel of Lyon, right. which is a city in France we play, beautiful city with two rivers running through it. And, and Steve came up and I said, you know, Katie, I forgot that. I must have been drinking or something. So I, I approached Steve and said, Steve, 
I've written this song and Katie informed me the truth is that you came up with the title. Now, if you like this song, I believe we've just co-written a pretty damn good song. And Steve goes, I don't know about that, man. Well, he listened to it and a few days later he said, all right, if you want to do it, it's a good song. And he recorded it, I recorded it, but a guy named Francesco De Gregori recorded it in the Italian language as a semi-hit. So I felt bad about the way it went down, but I felt good that it's a pretty good song and he's and we got a co-write together. Both versions are great. Yeah, both versions are great. And they're different. Yeah. You, Tom, you mentioned the Ray Wiley Hubbard tribute. Katie, didn't you tell me you're doing a track for a tribute? Was it the same one? I, I got a call from a guy I've known for a long time, a kind of mover and shaker out here in L.A. His name's Saul. And he's married to Carla Olson. And he had this idea to put together a Gordon Lightfoot tribute called Girls Sing Gordon, and it's all women. And Carla is producing it. Now, that's uh, Carla Olson was with the Text Tones, if I remember. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, yeah that was her band. And yeah. did she also do a lot of stuff with Mick Taylor from the Rolling Stones? Yeah, she's done things with Gene Clark. She's, she's like, or she's kind of seen it all. She really has. So tell us about this tribute. Well, I don't know a whole lot about it yet. I haven't talked with Carla yet, and she's my producer. So um, I'm I'm looking at a song that was one of the first songs I ever learned when I was, I don't know, 14, something. Right before the movie. Uh, (laughs) Right before Billy Jack. Right before the first movie, yeah. Yeah, it was called the Canadian Railroad Trilogy. But, an, but another song of, of Gordon's and one of the first ones that I ever actually performed, and that was when I was 16, I think, was For Loving Me. Tom told me a good story about when he met Gordon. Go ahead and share oh, that with us. Oh, Tom should tell it. He's the one who went through it. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty good story. I, very quickly, Lightfoot was having some health issues, and he was in the hospital, supposedly. So a Mariposa Folk Festival because he's huge in Canada and everywhere else, uh, had a Lightfoot tribute. Thousands of people there. So I'm going to do uh, That's What You Get for Loving Me. And I, I, Katie might have sang it with me, but also Cindy Church, who sang with uh, Ian Tyson, who sang on my Ian and Sylvia tribute record a year or two ago, Play One More, on True North Records. But we're out there kind of warming up and a sound checking and all of a sudden the crowd goes crazy and parts like the Red Sea. Lightfoot is walking through the crowd, you know, like Christ has been resurrected. Possibly the biggest, most famous songwriter to come out of Canada up there with Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, but it was astounding and he looked pretty damn good and he walked right past me and I realized I didn't have my guitar and they put him in the dressing room and locked the door where my guitar was and I was on in about 30 minutes and uh, I thought, oh no. So I politely got one of the uh, festival people and we knocked on the door and Gordon said, come in. I said, sorry, Gordon, I left my guitar. And he goes, come in here. I know who you are. And he said, you're the guy who wrote Navajo Rug with Ian. And I go, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, he goes, I love that song. He goes, what song of mine are you going to sing? And I said, that's what you get for loving me. And he goes, here, take my guitar. His old, I believe it was a Guild or a Martin. 
take my guitar and sing it for me right now. I want to check it. Sing me a verse. And I go, I'm auditioning for Gordon Lightfoot <laughs> on his own song. I'm going, oh, no. So I sang it. I sang a chorus. And this is the kind of guy he was. He took the guitar back. It had his set list from the 60s on it. And he said, you know what? That's the best version I've ever heard. Go out there and kill him. And it was such a great moment. Like Robert Hunter, me picking him up in the cab, where these guys show what really big, enthusiastic people they are. And we, we, we got to hang out a bit after the show. And uh, I saw him in El Paso a few years ago. And he's still out on the road. Uh, is that the same anecdote you were going to tell, Katie? <laughs> I saw I saw this thing that about a, a documentary. It's very new, a CBC documentary on Gordon. And, and part of this was I read a whole interview with him about this documentary. And he actually was watching, uh, he was kind of subjected to all of these versions of his songs from other people. And there was a barrage of versions of That's What You Get for Loving Me. And Gordon just finally said, turn it off, turn it off. That is the meanest song. I don't I, I don't know why I wrote it. I, I was married with two children, and I hate that fucking song. So <laughs> I'm not too sure that's the one I'm going to go for, but it's a great song nonetheless. Before you got on the line, I think I was asking Tom about the, the process, and so does Carla Olson give you kind of a short list of possibilities, or do you go to her and say, here's the ones I'm considering? How does Well, Honestly, I don't know. that his, um, Like I said, Saul contacted me first. I have not talked with Carla yet. I expect to hear from her uh, really any day now. But Saul had told me what songs were taken. And so I, I wrote that list down. And he's been kind of waiting to hear what I am going to choose to do. But I need to talk with my producer first because it'll be a... a studio that will be familiar to her and the players will not necessarily be familiar to me but to her so I need to talk with Carla so I'm I'm going to choose the song that it's going to be for me it's either about one that I really believe that I can just deliver a guitar vocal performance on or maybe something like Ribbon of, Hot, of Darkness which I love that song. I've never performed it, but but I'd I'd really love to to do it with some kind of country combo, you know. I just like to say to Katie. Katie usually comes to our shows in L.A. We will be at McCabe's February second, early next year, and I'm looking forward. If Katie's around, and come down, we'll sing "Walking on the Moon," etc. It's sure been an honor knowing uh, Katie, and she's always been very supportive. And I hope I've been supportive too but she's the real deal and we need the real deal katie do you have a favorite song that you co-wrote with tom oh my god i i I really love them all and one of the ones that i i'd love to hear tom do is half moon boulevard this heart stops for railroad crosses (laughs) oh yeah i love that song oh yeah we rewrote The Sparrow of Swansea, the song about Dylan Thomas, when I found out the authentic names of the pubs that we'd made up. So we rewrote it for my last record, Folk Hotel. I like that song, too. Yeah, I, I really like that song. They, you know, we didn't really yeah. we didn't really make up those, those names. Um, some of them were in an article that the 
uh, I can't remember the guy's name. The guy who has the, the Dylan Thomas Museum in Swansea. Huh. He he had mentioned some of these some of these bars that Dylan Thomas had gone to, but others that we used in Sparrow Swansea came from a piece of Dylan Thomas's, which was a great piece, and you can find it. I, if I could remember the title, that well, would help. I, I think I would have to say Sparrow of Swansea is is my favorite of your co-writes, and one of really? these days, yeah, one of these days I'm going to make it over to Wales and go on a a pub tour of wherever Dylan Thomas drank and maybe, I don't know, do oh, yeah, 18 shots of whiskey down. or something. I'm not sure, but. Well, you, you, you've obviously, John, cause I know you've been to the white horse tavern where he drank his so-called 18 fatal straight shots of whiskey before he passed on. Of course you were a bit, I don't want to say to the folks I, when you staggered home, what happened to you? But that that'll be in another song. You John. can tell people I, I got I got rat bite fever, and at one point that was the possible next title of your next album. Tom was rat bite fever. Is that still on the books? John got bitten by a rat outside uh, the White Horse Tavern, and I think that's an authentic village experience. Oh yeah, we, we will we will save that for the episode where I tell about riding in the elevator with Dylan and ninety miles an hour and all those other stories. Well, uh, maybe I'll start. My, I'm going to start my own podcast. Yeah, yeah. Why not, John? I mean, when you were our road manager recently uh, across the U.S., I heard quite a few interesting stories. I never knew you were a Shakespearean actor, so I think there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, let's get back to talking about you two. And anything else on the Merle Haggard tribute that you want to mention, either one of you? Uh, Katie, do you want to talk about the concert at all? Oh, man. Well, the concert was just a second chance for me to see Merle. I had gone to to see him in the mid-70s in Denver. And I was was seated. And this was back when Bob Eubanks actually... Who was you know him? He was he was like a game show host, but he also the newlywed great, game. Yeah, but he also yeah, brought he, the, a, he brought the Beatles to the Hollywood Bowl. I think he yeah he was a concert promoter in a big way, and he really cared about it. Merle, well, he had promoted all of these concerts while Merle was um, he was married to Leona Williams, and he had begun having some problems, as happens in his marriage, and. I was sitting, waiting to hear Merle for the first time. I was sitting with the radio station that was promoting the concert. And, you know, we saw the opening act, which was Doug Kershaw. And and then the strangers came out and they played. And then Bob Eubanks came out on stage and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what's going on. We're really quite worried, but Merle is not here tonight. And your tickets will be refunded and and all of the guys I was sitting with who who were promoting this concert, you know, as the radio station, it just went white. And I and I said, oh, he's just kidding, he's just kidding. But he wasn't kidding. And that was the first of several uh, shows that Merle actually missed. But he was okay. He he just was not okay then. So I didn't see him until that night that we all did this wonderful night together at the Fillmore West in San Francisco. And I I will never forget standing on a a balcony against the rail and watching Merle finally after all those years. And I lost a number of tears that night because it was just so moving and I had waited so long. What a wonderful story, Katie. 
We did uh, kind of skip over one person on the tribute, which was Lucinda Williams. And if I remember right, it seems like, Tom, didn't you tell me she was kind of late in the game of getting the track to you and almost didn't even make it on? Yeah, I think we were pushing her a little. She was involved with several projects. And I love Lucinda. You know, Dave and I worked with her early on. We did songwriting tours together and uh, and she thinks a lot about her music so uh, i think didn't she kept thinking it wasn't good enough and finally we told her it was she's known to be a perfectionist yeah and that's good because she's still going strong i did have a pretty good billy joe story i was the producer on the billy joe track in nashville and eddie shaver was alive the great guitar player billy's son and uh, the band was good and rocking but he, he was evidently hitting the wrong changes of the rambling fever according to his son eddie and, and billy joe insisted that he wasn't hitting the wrong changes so there was a little trip going down there and, and he didn't it didn't appear like he liked the track well we we recorded it and i said we'll mix it billy joe and you can hear it and he goes when will you have the mix i said in, in an hour or two he goes where can i pick it up i said well i'm at the motel six out on the edge of Nashville. He goes, I'll see you in two hours. I thought, and he didn't look happy. <laughs> and you know, Billy Joe, this is the guy who shot somebody in a bar, among other things, yeah. and, uh, later. Yeah. But uh, I go, oh, no. So two hours later, I'm pacing this crummy little hotel room on the edge of Nashville. His van pulls up outside, and I go, this is it. There's no way out. Bang, bang, bang. He knocks on the door. And he goes, you got that cassette? I go, yeah, yeah, Billy, I got it right here. And I go, oh, no. He goes, I'm going to play it in the truck. <laughs> and I, he took it, grabbed it, and went out to the van. And I, I'm looking through the shades going, I got to be able to defend myself now. He's going to come back in here and kill me or something. You know? He listened to it, I could see, two or three times. And uh, then he drove off. And uh, it, the indication was that he liked it eventually. So <laughs> right. it was scary. So. When he, when he showed up, end of story is when he, when he showed up live in San Francisco, he was the nicest, most polite Texas guy in the world. He had so much respect for Merle that he, he wouldn't go yeah. on the bus to meet Merle. He was staying out of the way. So I've seen both sides of him, and I'm still, he's still out there. He's been through a lot of tragedies. And to me, like Steve Young, like Katie, Billy Joe and that those first songs he wrote in the 70s that he insisted Waylon listened to were really groundbreaking literate songs. And uh, he's right up there with Stephen Katie as he, he needs a lot more recognition. I would like to thank my special guest, Katie Moffat, for joining us today. And of course, as always, thanks to Tom Russell for talking to me. And this has been the podcast from God Knows Where. Thank you, John. Thank you, Buck. Thank you, Katie. I hope to see you in February in L.A. I hope so. I want to see you then, and I love October in the Railroad Earth. Thank you. How great is Tom Russell? He is terrific. Isn't he tremendous? He really creates a mood. Yeah, it's always the best. I would like to quit this job and just travel with him. Travel with him? If, if the money can be worked out. I'm sure, yeah. I was going to say. <laughs>